Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener. I've been using Scrivener since 2014, and I never looked back. It's an amazing tool for writers in that it lets you build research in the same document that you're doing your work. You can put in images and PDFs. You can organize your work using the corkboard view. You can set goals. You can export it to multiple formats, including ebook and manuscript. There's really nothing Scrivener can't do in the writing universe, and I highly recommend it, which is why I'm so pleased that they're a sponsor. If you'd like to check them out, you can follow the link from our website or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code STORYDISCOVERY at checkout. If you're a writer and you haven't tried Scrivener, I highly recommend it. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Hey, listeners. We are so excited to let you know that the next several shows we'll be talking with the winners of our winter edition contest. Melissa and I would first like to thank our guest judges, Becky Hinshaw and Christopher Clancy, for their tireless work in the difficult task of selecting the top stories and poems. We would also like to thank each writer and poet who submitted their works for consideration in our first ever contest. We know writing and submitting can be a daunting experience, and we appreciate the opportunity to read your work. We wish all of you a prolific 2022. On today's show, we're listening to our third place winner, Blue Like an Evening Cloud, written by Stephen Polikoff and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and enjoy. Blue Like an Evening Cloud by Stephen Polikoff. I blink twice, but my father-in-law is still there. He is gulping down some of the Madoc I was saving in case I ever had reason to celebrate again. He is holding Spring's hand and beams up at me, his John Lennon glasses glinting in the afternoon light. I put down my bag of groceries, smile wanly. You didn't tell me you were coming, I point out. No, my boy, no, I did not. But our little springlet has been furiously texting me. I could stay away no longer. He leans in to hug my daughter, who is curled up next to him on the brown couch. Spring appears to be the only living human to whom Dr. Mare has a strong attachment. They routinely exchange texts, emails, photos. Yes, I still call him Dr. Mare, even though I was married to his daughter for 12 years even though we both lost her. He has always been Dr. Mayer to me. Scholar of the uncanny, author of innumerable, and often unreadable, books, articles, monographs on esoteric subjects ranging from Tibetan bardo lore to alien abduction. He disentangles himself from his elfin granddaughter, brandishes the wine bottle, Spring found this in a cabinet. Have some. Spring leaps up. Can I have a sip, Daddy? She deftly pours a small amount of wine, she knows this is all I will manage, into a dusty goblet. Dr. Mayer is examining a tiny reclining bronze figure, one of about 200 Ganesha statuettes, which dot our NYU sublet. My grad school pal Lucy, now on sabbatical in Bali, collects these intriguing figures of the Hindu elephant god. Dusting them and feeding her largely invisible cat is one of the few tasks involved in our occupying this apartment on West 3rd Street. 
What an extraordinary collection, he murmurs. God of new beginnings. Very appropriate, I am sure. I wish I were sure. We moved down here to get away from the sorrow of our house upstate, and because Lucy offered, and because I could not envision how to begin a life without Nadia, or much of anything really. The opener of doors. Perhaps he will open a door for you. He rises, shuffles toward me. He looks more stooped than the last time I saw him. It occurs to me that I have no idea how old he is, or how well he is, or how he has lived with the pain of losing his only child. He pats my shoulder, about as warm a gesture as he has in his repertoire. Good to see you, my boy. I have been planning to come down here for several months. But this book I am working on? Quite, quite consuming. He tries to gaze into my eyes, but I look away. He does not bring out the best behavior in me. How are things getting on here? Spring tells me she likes her new school. Are you working? Are you engaging in the energy, the life force to be found in this great city? No, I say. I drink the wine. Spring gives me a dirty look because I have not passed the glass to her as I sometimes do. The intercom buzzes, a nasty insect-like noise which always makes me flinch. Arena is coming up. Spring grabs my glass, licks the last drop of wine. We have to write an essay about a happy childhood memory and a sad childhood memory for humanities. We're going to work on it together. Springy spring! Irina bellows as she dances through the door. Her hair must have been recently recolored. It is even more vividly purple than before. The two 12-year-olds immediately began tickling each other, giggling, chasing through the hallway. Then, as if summoned by an unheard call, Irina stopped short in front of me. Hello, sir, she says with her strange politesse. My mother sends her regards. How are you? Okay, I guess. This is Spring's grandfather. She thrusts her hand at Dr. Mare, who looks at it as if not quite sure what to do with it. And how are you? Very well indeed, sir, she says. Why Irina speaks to me like a character from the Victorian novel is one of the host of mysteries about her family, some violent and restrictive cult from which her mother escaped with Irina. But before I can make further inquiries, Spring tugs at Irina's sleeve, and they vanish into the bedroom with their notebooks, laptops, cell phones. Dr. Mayer stares fondly at the spot Spring was recently occupying on the couch. Does she seem all right to you? He asks. Is she whole? Can she ever be whole? Can any of us ever be whole, having that cherished soul ripped from our lives? He sighs, sits on the black patio bench. And you, Paul? How do you manage it? How do you manage to go on with life, to take care of spring, to endure? I don't especially like the turn our conversation is taking. I have always preferred to honor the unwritten rule of in-law interaction. Never speak of anything important or allude to any emotion stronger than contentment. I stumble along, I say. What's my choice, really? I want to change the subject. I always want to change the subject when I am with Dr. Mayer. More wine? I turn toward the kitchen, but even as I try to engage in a normal life, a paranormal one seems to beckon. A long, thin shadow falls across the room, and it is Nadia's shadow and she is tapping insistently on Dr. Mayer's shoulder, and he sets up as if he can feel it, and his face is grayer and older than I have ever seen it, and then the shadow is gone, and I slump into a black leather chair. Sometimes lately, I think I see her. I see Nadia, or feel her, I say, 
and I cannot tell if I am whispering this or not. Her shadow, her ghost, I can't even describe it. It's evanescent, but still somehow solid, not like a creature from my imagination. Nadia, present, real, but it can't be. It can't be real. Can it? Nadia's ghost? He sips what is left of his wine thoughtfully. I suppose you are wondering if I believe in such phenomena. If, as some assert, a soul in a spiritual fugue state could be trapped between two planes of existence, perhaps. There are so many anecdotes. In Bora Bora, it is the blue apparition, the mournful imprint of one who cannot bear to be parted from a beloved other. In the Aran Islands, it is the black wind. A stream of cold air, black as smoke, pushing the living away from danger, howling like a banshee. He removes his glasses, vigorously wipes them with a small gray cloth. I think for a moment he might be crying, and I have never seen him cry, even at Nadia's funeral. There are other theories we must consider, though. My friend Oliver Sacks calls such occurrences bereavement hallucinations. Yes, and he tells us that they are similar to what surgeons call phantom pain, like the pain of a lost limb, a limb you can still feel throbbing, even when it has long ago been severed. Ordinarily, I would make some sarcastic remark to interrupt the good doctor's woolly musings, but Spring suddenly bolts out of her room, sobbing. I can't write this essay. I can't. I was trying to write a happy memory, and I was remembering how we would all go down to the creek, and Mommy would put me in an inner tube, and we would float side by side across the rocks, and we would sing, merrily, 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 life has been a dream. And it was so great. But now when I think of it, I want to scream, and I am not happy anymore. I don't have any happy memories anymore, because I miss her so much. And everything that was happy is sad now, and I hate remembering. I hate it. Irina emerges from the room, her eyes cast down. Dr. Mayer shifts back and forth, fingers one of the Ganeshas, clears his throat. Spring runs toward me. She grabs me so hard I think she will knock me over. I stroke her sweet head and my shirt is soon soaked with her tears. Then the room gets dark, like a cloud has just passed over us. And on the living room wall, I see Nadia's shadow again, and her arm is draped around Spring, and long blue fingers are touching Spring's face. I shudder. I whisper, Look at the wall! Into Spring's ear. She looks. She sees what I see. I am sure she sees it. Irina tugs at her arm. Guess what? My memories are pretty crappy too. Running away from our crazy family? Wondering why my mom lies all the time about them? Come on, Springy Spring. We'll make something up. Spring gives me a crooked smile. What? What was that? Irina and Dr. Mayer are both looking at me. I feel their eyes on me, as if they are waiting for me to reply, but I shrug and Spring gives a loud, funny whoop. And then the two girls race back into Spring's room. Spring looks up from her laptop, a question in her gray eyes. I know this look. On Irina's recommendation, she has been binge-watching How I Met Your Mother, and for some reason, the hysterical giggling this silly show induces always leads her into queries about Nadia, about our marriage, even veering occasionally toward the less appealing landscape of my earlier life. Okay, I know why you loved Mommy, she says. She was smart and funny and beautiful and had amazing energy and could do almost anything. She reels this list off from memory because it is what I always say when she asks about Nadia. Plus, she laughed at my jokes, even when they weren't that funny. Sure, Mommy was awesome. 
But you were like a thousand years older than she was. Why did she love you? I am pretty sure that all of Mommy's friends wondered the same thing. Once, in fact, I overheard Nadia's college pal, the permanently enraged Jennifer, put that very question to her. Although I think the phrasing was more along the lines of, What the fuck are you doing with him? It must be because I'm tall, I tell Spring. She sticks out her tongue at me. She knows, just like her mother would have known, that I will deflect any earnest question with a theoretically witty remark. I am serious, Daddy. She smacks the dining room table for emphasis. I need to know these things. Irina says her mom loved her dad because he was rescuing them from her crazy family. What about you and Mommy? I rub my forehead with my right hand, tap the arm of the chair with my left. Well, she did like to tell me that she rescued me from loneliness. She must have said that about a hundred times. I sigh loudly. I guess that could be considered ironic now. I don't know what ironic means. She leaps up. Her phone is buzzing with a text, doubtless from Irina. Soon she is furiously typing back, and her zeal for knowledge of my past life recedes into the dusk. I was not so much lonely as lost when I met Nadia at my friend Jack's wedding. She was the bride's distant cousin, a budding professional photographer, snapping dozens of photos of beaming aunts, tipsy bridesmaids, boisterous groomsmen. I almost didn't go to that wedding. My own previous two weddings were not wreathed in glory in my memory, and I had barely recovered from the implosion of my second marriage. My first wife, Laura, and I were married a scant eleven months. We had only youth and good looks and lust in common. Laura was from money, an actress, willowy, with a mane of blonde hair she liked to call pre-Raphaelite. I was idling as an editorial drone at the New Haven Register, while she played small roles at the Long Wharf Theater. I have no idea why we got married. Possibly my more muted persona was drawn to her vast store of theatrical emotions, and vice versa. And the sex was amazing, at least for a few months, five to be exact. When she took off to L.A. to audition for David Lynch, I thought it might be the beginning of a more buoyant phase in my life. I was quite willing to move west, shrug off and quake plans to go to grad school in journalism. Then I didn't hear back from her for a week, two weeks. Finally, she called me. Staying out here a while, she announced. I need my red Louboutins. Can you send them? You can actually see Laura for about 15 seconds in a nightclub scene in Blue Velvet, where she laughs giddily while Isabella Rosalini whispers a song. That's the last time I ever saw her, actually. We were divorced almost as quickly as we were married. With Annie, the story is far more convoluted. She wanted me to be serious about life, about my work, and I wasn't. Editing trade journals was like sleepwalking. And that sluggish fog seeped over to our relationship, too. I was aware of the notions of engagement and responsibility, but they seemed distant, unattainable. I was a spectral presence in my own living room. And then our baby died a few minutes after he was born, and our marriage died. Wrapped in a shroud of numbness, mine, and recrimination, hers. It was less than a year after Annie slammed out of our dispiriting apartment on West 82nd Street that I met Nadia, then in flight from her obsessed ex, Fred. Why was she attracted to me? She was young, hopeful, a dynamo. She had no reason to be drawn into my oblique orbit, but she was. Everybody always wants me to be somebody else, she told me shortly after she started moving her things into my apartment. Fred wants me to be like some flower he picked. My mother wants me to be angry at men the way she is. My dad wants me to be some kind of mystic embodiment of the female. You just want me to be me. I can picture her saying this, 
in the tiny dark kitchen of that apartment, while the chieftains wailed Gaelic laments from my tinny CD player. And then I can see her saying it, right now, hovering above me on the couch, her beautiful face larger than life, tinted blue like an evening cloud. I stare up at her luminous, slightly lopsided smile, her ghostly mouth as big as my head. I miss her so much that today I cannot even bother to be alarmed by her presence here. I stretch my hand up to touch her. She puffs into smoke. Gone. I push up from the couch, coughing. I, uh, I just remembered something Mommy said. I sputter in the direction of my texting child. She says, she used to say, she loved me because I let her be herself. What? Spring says, barely looking up from her phone. Oh, okay, cool. You've just heard Blue Like an Evening Cloud, written by Stephen Polikoff. And we have him on the show today to talk about this piece and writing in general. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. And we also have, of course, our co-host, Melissa Collings. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much. Hello, <laughs> hello. Great. All right, Stephen. Well, one of the first things we do when we get this show going is just have you tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. This piece is actually an excerpt from uh, my third novel, which is going to be published by Flexible Press next fall. It's exciting. It is sort of exciting. Uh, the novel is yeah. called Dangerous Blues, um, and it's uh, the characters in, in this story and in this novel are actually also in my other two novels. Um, oh, wow. Uh, I mean, read by few, but, 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 <laughs> but some, but some. Yes, of course. So, Oh, that's terrific. Good. Well, tell us about your background. Um, gosh, what is my background? I mean, I, you know, I was a playwright and had plays produced in tiny off-off-Broadway theaters. I also wrote a lot of magazine articles for mostly magazines that I um, would never read myself, like Cosmopolitan and Ladies Home Journal. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm a professor of writing at NYU, where I've been for, oh, 27 years, I think. Oh, yeah. Terrific. It's really neat. And so when you, how did you get into playwriting? I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, off, off Broadway, there's still, that's, that's not as small as it gets. I have a friend who's an actress and there's um, way the hell off Broadway, right? That's what it's called when it's like off, 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 off Broadway. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's not so trivial. So how did you get started in that? It was my first love, actually. And that's sort of what I wanted oh, to do. Okay. I wrote a play in college that was my senior thesis. And that was put on, uh, and, and was an almost inexplicable success. It was kind of a, it was a rock musical and it had, oh. you know, a lot of weird stuff and people loved it, <laughs> um, which gave me the incorrect idea that I might be able to actually, you know, have, make a living as a playwright, um, <laughs> than which there are very few things less true. Um, oh. yeah. so, and, and I did that for a long time and I, you know, I worked as a, a dramaturg for an off-off-Broadway theater for a long time. Um, but I got a little um, weary of of it, primarily because, you know, there's a lot of assholes in the theater, actually. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, but also, I mean, it's, it, it's a wonderful thing to be collaborative, but it also is limiting in some ways in terms of, you know, what you can do for your, in your own work. So yeah. ultimately, I decided I liked fiction better. And that's sort of what I ended up doing. And so you naturally transitioned into writing for ladies' magazines. <laughs> well, that was a separate thing. I mean, that was a way to try to make a living, actually. And okay. It, it happened because it sort of something fell into my lap, basically. Very interesting. So did you enjoy doing that? I know you said you wouldn't necessarily read those journals or, or magazines, but did you enjoy it? How long did you do it? Uh, gosh, long time, at least 10 years. Oh, wow. Um, okay. No, I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I, <laughs> they paid very well. And, you know, I liked being freelance for a long time, but, you yeah. know, mm -hmm. uh, but, um, very few lances were as free as mine actually. Um, oh, wow. and, and the thing about free, uh, being a freelancer is that you have to always be looking for work. And I was terrible at that. I was good at 
at writing whatever people wanted me to write, but I, I, you know, I would slack off in terms of looking for work. And one day I woke up and said, this is a terrible way to live. Um, uh. and so I sort of, I started teaching. Interesting. Okay. So is that way less terrible? <laughs> uh, well, You're in that, it now, so be careful what you say. I know, exactly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it has its terribleness. Uh, I mean, I, I love the sitting around talking about writing with my students, the meetings and the, uh, other stuff, the administrative stuff is, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody really likes that. Yeah. Sure, it comes sure. with every profession, I think. Yeah. That, yeah. The ug there's an ugly side to every profession. Indeed. Yeah. Right. Well, I took a, a, a night class, kind of a segue many, many, many years ago, but it was so refreshing, even though I'd only been working maybe five or six years out in the world, but even that little bit of difference between me and the students, I was just blown away by what they thought and what they believed and their perspectives. So that must be yeah. a lot of fun for you as well. Well, fun may be a strong word for them. <laughs> but, uh, interesting. It is interesting. I mean, that's one of the things that I do actually like. I like, I mean, I like most of my students. Some of them need a good smack upside the head, but... But of course, but that's I, just people in general. I generally, I, I like that part and their, their youth and energy sometimes is daunting, but other times it's, you know, it's, it's great. Yeah, that's cool. Good. Have you seen a big change in, in student mindset with the pandemic? Yeah, very much so, yeah. unfortunately. I've heard uh, that. I mean, everyone that, uh, all of my colleagues have talked about this, but uh, I mean, there is, uh, especially uh, I teach freshmen, I teach other uh, older students too, but, um, but my bread and butter is freshman writing classes and, okay. you know, they've been damaged for sure by, yeah. uh, I mean, the anxiety of the pandemic and also just by missing out on the, you know, what school actually is. Yeah. Which, that structure right. and yeah. The social oh, stuff really. Yeah. 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 I've, I've heard that a lot, that that's something that the classes coming up, they're struggling with a lot of different things. Totally. Uh, I mean, mental health issues are way, way more present than they were even a few years ago. Right. Wow. Do you see that in the writing? Can you tell by looking at, at writing, is that showing up more in the pieces that the students are putting out there? To some extent, yeah. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't say that it is an overwhelming feeling, but I think I see it more in there. Um, and they don't have the... Uh, uh, the urge to absolutely have to be present all the time. They, th yeah. they feel like they don't have to be present all the time. Yeah. Um, uh, that's definitely a Zoom affliction, I think. Yeah. Um, but sometimes, yeah, I mean, I one of my classes last year uh, for their final project, a lot of them wrote anxiety pieces, basically. I mean, sort of wow. COVID anxiety pieces. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Makes sense. Yeah, it well, does. We've seen a fair number of submissions along those lines ourselves. So I'm it's sure. definitely in the ether, as it were. Yes. Well, um, so this piece, let's just talk a little bit about this piece. I, I love the writing style, first of all. So it was a lot of fun to read, really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm glad the judges picked me. Oh, here I go again. I started this. I didn't even say the third place, did I? <laughs> I should I have introduced him. <laughs> Goodness gracious. All right, listeners, Stephen Pologov, our third place winner for the winner edition contest. Okay, we got that in. So... Um, yeah, I'm glad the, the judges selected this one. So what inspired you to write this story or give us a little bit of background about it? Well, the novel is about uh, Paul, the narrator of this story, um, and his daughter, who is 11 going on 12 in, in the novel. The, the premise is that he is haunted by the ghost of his, uh, his late wife. Um, mm -hmm. And all the people he meets are, are haunted by something else. Um, and... Uh, this is part of where he starts to see the the ghost of his late wife um, mm. and and his daughter also um, seems to see it as well. I wanted it to be not entirely clear how much of it is his perception and how much of it is actual uh, whatever fact. Truth. Right. Um, I like that. And, and that, you know, that's sort of my my general. I'm, I kind of like uh, supernatural uh, resonance, let us say, without necessarily wanting it to be, I mean, it's not really a ghost story, but it's mm. sort of a ghost story. Yeah. Right. It's definitely teetering on that. Yeah. I like teetering. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, and you did a good job of not being clear. You know, it's a shadow, if I remember on the wall, you know, in the shape and it's sort of like, well, that could just be a shadow. 
that he's interpreting because of his grief. Yes. Right. But yeah. then you say, but the daughter sees it too. I like that multiple interpretations. It's like that um, picture where you look at you look at it, and some people uh, see the old lady, and then some people see the young. And it's supposed to right. tell you something about yourself. Right. But right. Yeah. So this I don't know is if kind this of tells you anything thing. about yourself, but I it could. I, I like that idea. Both of my previous novels have sort of vaguely supernatural elements, also. But again, it's it's sort of up in the air whether it is true or whether it is. Um, something that's that's being imagined. Yeah. So is this the third one in a trilogy then, in a way? I mean, kind are they of. all connected? It okay. wasn't intended to be a trilogy, but it, it kind of turned out that way. I mean, if anyone were to actually carefully read the three of them, there are certainly disparities in the timeline and stuff like that. But yeah. but the characters uh, are the same. Um, uh, okay. uh, Paul is the narrator, and uh, in the previous novel, Come Away, Spring, the the little girl is only five, and she doesn't exist in the first one. <laughs> so, okay, okay, cool. And what's the first one called? For Beautiful this? somewhere else. I like right. that title. Okay, yeah, Beautiful somewhere that back. else. I know. I like yeah. both those titles. Those are great. Yeah, Thank all you. the titles are really nice. Thank I'm you. a big title person. I like. I, I, like I love that. titles. Beautiful somewhere else is uh, out of print, sadly. Uh, although it is findable. Uh, Come away with Zank Books, published in 2014. You can still find that one. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Great. That's very cool. So you like that space between um, reality and, I don't know, spiritual or what's the word for that? I'm not really sure. Yeah, that's supernatural. So tell yeah. us a little bit more about that because I find that interesting. What draws you in to that? You know, I I don't know. I've always been interested in magic. Yeah. As a kid, I was a kid magician. Um, oh, neat. Uh, yeah, I was bad. But I actually entertained at kids' birthday parties and stuff like no that. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah. That's excellent. Uh, and I've always, I don't know why, I've always been drawn to it. I mean, I'm not drawn to it in my own life, particularly. I'm not, yeah. uh, I mean, I'm a, a skeptic on a case by case basis while yeah. being interested in the weird stuff, stuff that has no real explanation. I think that's, that's what draws me in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's like Stephen King's thing, I think. I mean, because we're, we're big Stephen King fans, and he always basically says, like, the normal person faced with unreality. Yeah, I yeah. Like How that. you deal with that. It's a little disturbing. So I just got back from Disney World. First time I've ever been. And I really enjoy it. But my husband and I were talking about the animatronics. I'm a tad bit freaked out by animatronics. <laughs> uh, and I mean, they're everywhere. So I have to kind of put myself in this headspace like, oh, it's, it's okay. It's okay. You know, we're all right here. But my husband was saying, who's also named Steven, as I have I've told you, um, he said there's a fine line between like, if it's totally abnormal and not like a human at all, we're okay with it. If it's completely like a human, we're okay with it. But there's this space in between that's like something's just a tad bit off and it, it freaks you out. And so um, it's kind of, it makes me think of that, but it's like that, that other something um, that's not quite explained that, you know, we, we kind of like to put things in a box and when they don't fit into a box, it's very interesting. I, yeah. I agree. <laughs> well, kind of um, took that off in a strange version, but I'm just picturing, you know, like <laughs> these, you. these faces, you know, put on to these characters and I, I'm still thinking about it, but you know. <laughs> oh, that's great. Anyway. Well, so tell us, do you have a different mindset when you're writing? I know you haven't done this perhaps in a long, long time, but the playwriting versus fiction writing or writing, writing, is that different for you and how you approach it or just the format? Tell us about that. Um, I mean, I do other kind of writing. I have been working on a memoir and, and I still write nonfiction sometimes. The real difference between being a, between playwriting and fiction writing is, of course, that everything in playwriting has to be done in dialogue um, mm -hmm. and there can't be any exposition. Uh, I think that, I mean, that's helped me. I think I'm good at dialogue, actually. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But also it, it limits the kind of stories that you can tell because everything has to be what happens between the characters on stage. I mean, other people maybe can do it differently, but I mean, that's always been how it, how it seemed to me. Whereas fiction, mm. you know... I, I mean, I have gotten to the place where I could sit down and sort of shift into that head and become the characters, but also be able to step back a little bit from them and have the story told not only by, you know, in, in dialogue, basically. Interesting. So are you still doing some play type? I think about it, but I haven't for, for a while. I may yeah. yet, again, but at, 
mostly at the moment, um, not really doing that. Yeah. That's interesting. So how do you decide what you're going to work on? If you're working on some memoir fiction, how do you decide what you're going to do in a day? Or do you jump around or? I jump around. Yeah. I mean, I tend to work on one project at a time, but sometimes I put the one away and start something else if I'm stuck or getting a little bored with it. Um, yeah. I mean, my teaching schedule makes it, you know, I have to sort of uh, designate a day or two that I'm going to write um, mm. uh, during the week. Cause I have a lot, I have a lot of other stuff to do. I'm sure. Right. Right. Sure. That makes sense. So how mm. do you, what does your typical writing week look like when you set time aside? You know, some people do like an hour a day. How, what does that writing time look like for you? Um, it tends to be, you know, an afternoon, uh, or two. Um, I can almost never actually sit down for more than a couple of hours, uh, to actually write. Sometimes once in a great while longer, but not much longer. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a personality thing, really. Okay. Um, you just can't stand to sit there that long, not necessarily making <laughs> kind time of. for it. Sometimes I get up and come back. Um, yeah. and you know, especially I have, if I've designated an afternoon for, for me to do this, I, you know, I'll do some work, I'll get up, I'll do something else, then I'll come back and do some more. Um, but I, I don't write every day. It's almost impossible for me to do that. I know there are people who say, if you don't write every day, you're not a writer, but that's, that's <laughs> nonsense. I agree. Nonsense. I agree too. Yeah. I think yeah. everybody is different and you come in burst. I have um, a friend who wrote a novel, a fantasy novel in 28 days. Wow. She, she just finished it, but she was like in the zone and she was just going every single day, like 4,000 words a day or more. And it was amazing. But there have been great stretches where she wouldn't write for long periods of time because she felt stuck. So I think you kind of ride those days where it feels right to write and, you know, and then the days where it doesn't quite feel that way, you kind of, you can get away with not and still be a good writer because her novel is great. I'm, I'm starting to read it now. And, um, mm, cool. and yeah, so it's, it's super impressive what you can do when you're in the mood. Yes. Yeah, so and when you have the time. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's critical. Hmm. Uh, I have summers also. So that's when I do a lot of work is, uh, from sort of May till September is when I do the most work probably. Yeah. That's another curious thing. So when you're setting aside kind of an afternoon during teaching times, when you have summers and you have every day off, what does your day look like writing? When you can't, if you can't sit there, I'm curious now because you don't sit there for long periods of time. Are you kind of spending the whole day jumping up and down? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it depends on the day. And what else, whatever else is going on. But yeah, I mean, or sometimes I'll just say, I'm going to write for two hours today. And then, you know, because I have other things that have to get done. But yeah. Um, also, I mean, then there are days that I don't feel like it or that, right. you know, I want to sure. go for a long walk or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so these are all long form works that you've talked about. And I understand this is just a chapter from your novel, obviously, but are, do you also do short stories? You know, I've, I've started writing a couple of short stories. I wrote short stories when I was younger and didn't like them very much. <laughs> They're harder, I think. <laughs> yeah, that, I think so. Um, I've had several stories published, but mostly they've been excerpts or, you know, yeah. worked upon excerpts from the longer works. Um, I just, I, I wrote a very short story the other day because every once in a while I think I really should have a piece of flat fiction that I can right. show yeah, people, sure. although I'm, I'm not really good at short. I, I'm better at longer, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a competition on Twitter or something the other day, and it was, I don't know, it was three sentences. Like, yes. that was your, that's like ultra flash. I don't even it, know what that is. I, to <laughs> yeah. me, that's, I don't know. That's kind of crazy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I, I just can't think in, in those small bites, really. Right, right. Yeah. yeah I, I kind of agree. It's hard. Cool. So what is your writing atmosphere? Do you go somewhere else to write? I mean, I guess with the pandemic, that's been challenging if that's the case, or are I, you just... I have this whole office set up in my bedroom, basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do have an office at NYU, and I do go in there sometimes and write, but I get more distracted there by school stuff. So if I yeah. want to stay away from thinking about school stuff, I tend to stay here, close the door, so that my daughter doesn't intrude. Not a coffee shop <laughs> kind of person then, right? Not really. I do sometimes take a notebook and go somewhere and, and sit and write. I've done that. I go to the yeah, park sometimes or 
or over to the Hudson River and sit there. Sometimes, sure, I do do that, but not so much. It's it's easier for me to just sit here uh, at my desk and do it. Yeah, sure, that makes sense. But that means handwriting it out. Yeah, in in the journal. Yeah, I do yeah. still do that. I I don't yeah. do it as much as I used to. I I often start in a journal, um, and then really? when my handwriting is starting to um, become even unreadable to me, <laughs> I'll transfer it to uh, to the laptop. Oh, that's funny. That that's pretty bad. I can write. Um, I don't write much anymore. I usually type everything, but you know. I'll write pretty horrible and no one can read it, but I can read it. So when it gets to the point where you can't read your own writing anymore, you know you're, it's time to move to the computer. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. That's funny. Excellent. So nebulous concepts here. What do you think makes a good story? Uh, I'm not sure I can answer that question. I mean, I, I like a good first line. I, and there are plenty yeah. of stories that I've picked up where the first line doesn't interest me. And I think I don't really have time for this. Um, <laughs> uh, something that people. grabs me. Uh, I, I don't have any real strictures. I avoid the voice of the, uh, you know, of the narrator, whoever, whoever that may be, is, is what really tends to grab me, actually. Yeah. Interesting. Any pieces that are a must in the story for you? Do you think beginning, middle, end? Are you okay with like a cliffhanger ending? Yeah. I mean, I actually do like cliffhanger endings. Yeah. Um, Something that ends without being completely resolved. Yeah. I don't actually, I kind of prefer ambiguity to okay. uh, to resolution. Although, you know, sometimes I'm pissed off by stories that don't seem to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least half of the stories in The New Yorker, for example, um, uh, I think no. I think this is not a you know you have not completed your task here. Uh, oh boy. There's difference in a finished story and then just leaving it where the mind can take you somewhere. You know. Yes, uh, that's hilarious. I like it. So you're teaching relatively entry level freshmen, I guess. What are some of the key elements that you want them to focus in on? Like at the end of the year, what do you like them to have learned from you? Um. <laughs> What do I want there? I mean, I do teach upper level courses too. I'm teaching a sure. I'm teaching a freshman class, and I'm teaching a sophomore junior seminar, which is a sort of literature slash creative writing class. Um, I, I want my students to have learned what a voice is. Um, that punctuation does matter. Um, <laughs> and that what? And that just you know, running off at the mouth about something is not writing yeah yeah, yeah that's a good point cool well are you so you've got these long works are do you plot it all out no uh i can yeah. i can see that Again, i, I would have guessed that's that. something that i mean people say if you don't plot it out you're not doing it right but that's a personality right. as you know i mean totally. i often know what i think the last moment is going to be but i don't know yeah. necessarily how i'm going to get there um yeah and I do, I don't do outlines. I do, I list, I do a lot of lists. Um, mm. And sometimes I go back and outline what I've written kind of to see what I've forgotten, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. That's interesting, yeah. So, but I, I, sometimes I don't really know where it's going. But the list isn't a list for things that are coming up necessarily. It's more of a list of things that have happened that then spurs you forward. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a list of things that I want to happen, even oh, okay. if I'm not okay. sure how I'm going to do those things. Um, sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I do both of those things. Yeah, yeah. I'm in love with lists, actually. You're in love with lists? I love lists, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does Is it satisfying to cross those items so off? So satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sometimes I'll just write a list so that I can cross Absolutely. those things Absolutely, <laughs> I, I do that too. It's very satisfying. Oh my I gosh, it. I add things. If I did something that's not on my to-do list, I add it so I can cross it off. Yes. Oh yeah, I mean, yes. I, you know what? That is just, it's got to be done. <laughs> that's exactly right. No, you got to get credit for those things, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love it. What are your favorite things to read and how much time do you spend reading? Um, well, when I'm teaching it, I don't read as much as I do at other times because I'm reading mm -hmm. endless essays. But I... I mean, I love to read. I, I would be lost without it. I, I mostly only read novels um, and mostly literary novels, but I have pretty eclectic taste. I do read, 
I read some nonfiction. I read memoir. Um, uh, the Lonely City by Olivia Lang uh, is one of my favorite books. I te I'm teaching that this semester, actually, which is uh, sort of a hybrid of a memoir and an art history book uh, oh, about artists in New York. It's a great book. Hmm. I, but mostly I read novels. Right now, I'm reading uh, a Louise Erdrich uh, novel, not the new, most recent one, but uh, The Watchman, which I think won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years I've ago. I've heard of I've I've heard of yeah, that I've one seen floating that around. Lots of places. But yeah. I read, you know, I read all over the map, kind of. Yeah. Do you have a favorite genre, though? I mean, like you're like you sort of default to one, but you're open to others, or are you just wide open? Um, I mean, I mostly I read literary novels. I mean, I don't really yeah. have a. I I will read. I, I don't read mysteries, although I like the idea of mystery. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't read much science fiction, although. I'm not opposed to it completely. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't really have a particular genre. Yeah, cool. So can you explain kind of the difference between a literary novel, what a literary novel is for those listeners that might be like, well, what what are you talking about? Uh, that's a terrible question. Because um, <laughs> I can't so put you on the spot. I'm, I'm not sure what, what I, I, I would say the distinction is that the language and the characters are more important than the plot. That's my sort of, I mean, not to say that there is no plot, because of course a lot of, I mean, right now that uh, Louise Erdrich novel I'm reading has a lot of plot, um, but it's all subordinate to who the people are and what the language is that's being yeah. used to, uh, to describe them and to uh, sort of engage them. That, yeah. I think that's, I mean, that may not be a completely legit, uh, distinction, but that's sort of what how I think of it. Yes, I think I that's think how that's I think of good. it too. Yeah. yeah, I think that's pretty good. Well, what about your family? Um, so, are they supporters? Are they first readers? How do they fit into the picture? Uh, well, no, they're not. I don't actually. I don't let anybody read my work. Um, pretty much. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I had a friend who was my first reader, but uh, sadly, he he's gone. Um, oh. My parents are gone. I would never have shown my work to them anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, no, not really. I don't, I mean, my family, they were always supportive of me in their own yeah. odd way, let us say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think my dad was always <laughs> disappointed that I didn't become a doctor because that's what he was. But yeah. Uh, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but my mom was an artist. So, you know, I had that going for me also. Yeah. Yeah, uh, sure. Well, but do you have a, a group that you I mean? It's not, it must get some exposure somewhere along the line. No, you just go straight to an editor. Kind of no. I, I mean, <laughs> I have I have a couple of colleagues that I do share my work with sometimes. Um, yeah. But generally, I don't show anything to anybody till I'm till I'm done with it. Kind yeah. Of, or, yeah. Or, or tentatively done with it anyway. Yeah. You're fairly sure. confident in the work. Um, most of the time, sometimes not, but yeah, most of the time, yes. Yeah. I think there's a vulnerability to showing work that you're not quite finished with, you know, where if you, your, your first draft say, you know, to showing that to somebody versus uh, a what's in your mind, the final draft, which, you know, is hardly ever the final draft. You think it's done and it's totally not, no, no. but right. um, that's super frustrating. But, but yeah, I think there's a, it's, it's interesting how different people share their work along the way. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I do have, I do have a couple of colleagues that, that I share work with sometimes, but. And I've been, I have been part of writing groups occasionally, but I'm not, yeah. a, I'm not a group person. I'm just a, yeah, yeah I'm just not. More of a mm -hmm. soloist. I, I, I guess so. Yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of writers fall into that category. So that is not really that unusual, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, here I am ringing the bell. We're already at 30 minutes or so. So, um. Time to kind of wrap it up, get to those last couple of questions. I I think we could probably do two more questions with our, our famous last question. Okay. Melissa, do you have one you want to throw out there before we hit that one? Yeah, well, we've talked a ton about writing. So what do you do when you're not writing? Hobbies, extracurriculars? Um, I I read a lot. I love going to the theater <laughs> yeah. or, you know, did before COVID. Um, theater is one of my hobbies, actually. Uh Attending? I, yes, attending. Yeah. Um, yeah. I go for a lot of walks. I yeah. sit around and brood about things. You know, I don't, <laughs> I mean, I play the piano badly and I, you know, sometimes <laughs> I doodle, but I mean, really, those are, I don't have any serious hobbies. 
Yeah. You uh, create shapes out of those shadows on the walls, then you put them in your books. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. I like that. That's cool. good. All right. Well, so one of the questions that we apparently are going to continue to ask here in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always varied answers. I know. So far, it's been kind of amazing. Um, yeah. So share some writing advice, tips, tricks, whatever you would like to leave our aspiring writers with related to like what you've learned and or what, you know, readers might be interested in. Um, I guess uh, one of my pieces of advice, and I say this to my students all the time, is you really have to be careful about who you listen to and what kind of advice you let into your life and that you should never let anybody uh, tell you what your writing should be like. Um, if three or four people tell you something about your writing, maybe you should listen to them. Uh, but mm -hmm. you have to be careful that, that people are not telling you how they would have written it if they had written it. It should be you. It's got to be you. Um, right. and, it, and it has to resonate ultimately with you. Um, and the other piece of advice I always say is, you know, as Winston Churchill said, said under very di different circumstances, never give in, never give in, never, 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 never. <laughs> that's terrific. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for submitting your work and being on the show. We had a wonderful time chatting with you and reading it, and we're so happy to get it out to the world and now hopefully get folks interested in um, your novel that'll be coming out here shortly. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so nice meeting you. Likewise. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature & Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.